Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today I will be talking with John Stoy. Now, John has worked in finance at the highest levels and then changed his career to become a financial advisor for everyday people like you and me. John's practice is part of a minority of advising firms due to how they charge their clients for their services. Now, we're going to be talking to John about agency theory. Now, we go into this in a little bit more detail in the episode, but just for a quick overview... Agency theory is the risk of things not going the way you want them to go just because you put someone else in charge of it and you didn't do it yourself. Part of this agency risk is how financial advisors can take advantage of their clients. Now, please note that John and I are not saying that all advisors do the things that we're going to talk about in the episode. Our goal is to talk about these issues so that you know the risks of going to an advisor before getting one. So, Without further ado, let's go ahead and bring him on. So, John, welcome to the show. Alex, thanks for having me. Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm glad you were able to take time out of your day and come visit with me here on this, uh, you know, random weekday evening. <laughs> yeah, the uh, it's it's dark outside my window, so uh, I know that it's evening. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, we're in we're in winter right now, so it's a little tough. But you know, we're we're getting through it. Oh, yeah, got to have the coffee to keep you going. Doesn't matter. Daylight, sundown, doesn't <laughs> matter. If you caffeinated, you're good to go. <laughs> All right, John, so we have you on the show here to pick your brain a little bit on sort of the agency theory. But before we really go into that, something I'd like to ask you is, would you mind going a little bit in your background and maybe your journey of working through financial services? Sure, sure. Um, well, my journey into financial services uh, started pretty randomly. I basically was home from college one year, and my friend called me up. He had been working uh, in Manhattan for a Wall Street firm, and he called me up and he said, uh, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, I'm, right now I'm looking for a summer job. And he said, well, can you, can you be into the city in, a, in an hour? And uh, I dropped everything that I was doing. <laughs> I'd say I put on a suit, but I don't think I owned one yet. So I, I put on a tie and jumped on the train to Manhattan. And I guess I must have either didn't drool on myself or something like that. And so they, <laughs> they hired me for that summer. And I don't think that they intended for me to come back uh, the next year, but I sort of just made it happen and showed up uh, after I graduated from college. And so that was it. I started my first job on Wall Street was on a mortgage trading desk back in the early 90s. Well, hey, better the early 90s than the late 2010s. <laughs> yeah, that much is true. Although the amazing thing is that the markets all roared back. And I don't even just mean uh, after the lows of the pandemic, but I, I just mean after even the financial crisis of, uh, of a decade or so ago, which is where I temporarily stepped out of the financial markets. But no, I, I, I ended up taking uh, after that a pretty, what I would consider normal, if not I guess a little bit successful uh, path at the time, but I, I I worked for a couple of banks in in New York. I, I did some structured finance consulting for KPMG. I went to business school. I worked in Chicago, and I ended up down here in Atlanta managing money for uh, what was at the time ING, and then SunTrust Bank. And during the financial crisis, uh, a partner and I opened up a, a hedge fund where we were to in, invested in 
distressed assets. And uh, basically, you know, that was uh, fantastically exciting, raised a, a ton of capital to do that. And uh, before we, I learned how government interaction uh, with the markets uh, can affect people very directly because two weeks before we were supposed to close on our first transaction, we were buying about $120 million of paper and they bailed out the banks for the last time. And the very next day, we got a call from our from our counterparts uh, and said, uh, "Well, you know, uh, we don't need your money anymore. <laughs> uh, the uh, the the you know taxpayer money is a lot cheaper than hedge fund money." So uh, <laughs> so so that was <laughs> that that sort of led me led me to take a little bit of a break from uh, from finance uh, for a while. And uh, what I did was I opened up my own food business. I opened up a sushi processing company and I ran, grew, ran and sold that uh, about five years later. And then for a few years, uh, I was a stay-at-home dad. And a couple of years ago, my son got into uh, kindergarten and we said, you know, it's time for for me to get back into uh, into the workforce. And I was drawn to the personal finance side uh, rather than the institutional side, which is where I was on before managing money for corporations uh, and versus uh, for individuals. And I, I wanted to get into that side of the business because frankly, I just saw how bad and how basically kind of slimy um, the, the personal finance and financial management side of the business is. So my goal is to make it a little less slimy. <laughs> Look, you and me both. I mean, I'm sitting here just trying to give free education out to people. I don't even have affiliate links that I give to people. (laughs) And you know what? That's fantastic. I don't have any problem with folks using affiliate links as long as they're broadcast. And basically, if people are aware that those links are there, that's okay. But yeah, I I don't do anything like that. Um, We can get into it later. But my company is all uh, entirely structured so that people know exactly what they're getting and what they're paying for it. (laughs) Well, I think we can go into that in just a second, but there is one thing I wanted to sort of clear up on, and that's just something that I find interesting because I'm a finance nerd. Mm -hmm. So a few minutes ago, what John told us was that he was working for what seems to be a hedge fund in distressed debt. And what that means is companies that are in danger of potentially going into bankruptcy and might need a quote-unquote emergency loan to help get them out of said situation. So what he was saying was, they needed some extra money to get them through the crisis. But right at the time they were going to close the deal and give them all this money for not a cheap price, the U.S. government jumped in and said, hey, we're bailing out the banks again. Who wants a bag of cash? That is uh, exactly what happened. Yeah, and, and, and not to get too far into the weeds there, but what I was investing in were distressed CDOs, collateral, <laughs> collateralized debt obligations. And those were basically part of the um, house of cards that almost brought down the entire financial system about 10 years ago. Uh, and I had expertise in that area along with, uh, along with a few other people that I worked with. So that was what we were doing. Those are the, the instruments that, that did almost bring down the entire uh, <laughs> financial you know, structure of, the, of, the, of essentially of the first world. And we dealt with, uh, with the aftermath of that for a while. But no, I didn't become a character uh, in The Big Short, although I knew several of the people who were uh, a bit bit characters and bit players in that book. None, not the four guys that were that were the sort of uh, the main characters, but but I knew several of the people that they that they ran into in the movie and the book. 
<laughs> well, it's always good to rub shoulders, those kinds of people. Yeah, it's it was fun. Um I I don't know that I'll ever be in uh in in positions like that again, but that's okay. Uh you know, that's what you do when you're when you're I guess younger. <laughs> yeah, just collapse the whole financial system. <laughs> oh, we were kids. <laughs> So, John, you had mentioned a minute or so ago that you wanted to make the financial services industry a little less slimy. Now, that is actually exactly why we have you on here today. You watch out a little bit of the pitfalls of having a financial advisor. So would you mind going into a little bit of this, quote unquote, slimy behavior? Yeah, sure. Well, this is not new information. The The, the industry has changed quite a bit over the last couple of decades, really. And that change has thankfully been accelerating recently. But for most of the history of the financial services industry, the way that stockbrokers and then they wanted to be called financial advisors uh, and insurance agents, you name it, the way they were paid was by commission. So if they sold you something, they got paid. And the problem with that whole system is that you as the client really, it's impossible for you to know whether the person is selling you something because it's the right product for you, or whether it's because it's the product that's going to pay them the biggest commission. So people started becoming more and more aware of that over time. And the concept of of a fee-only advisor came up and came out of that. And so many, if not most, uh, financial services firms that, that are decent advisors will call themselves fee-only. And so that was a big improvement, without a doubt. The problem with, with fee-only is that most of the fee-only advisors charge their fees based upon a percentage of the people's assets that they have under management. And that model is called the assets under management or AUM model. And that sounds nice. And, and what the advisors like to say is that, you know, we do well when you do well. That's the big that's the big uh, phrase that they love to use because they say, okay, well, I get paid more if your assets grow and therefore I have incented to grow your assets. Well, the thing is there that, that advisors don't grow assets. Markets grow asset values, um, economics, uh, consumer behavior. Yeah, I mean, those are the things that change asset values, not the behavior of, a, of an advisor. And so, when I got started getting to the business, people, in fact, people suggested to me that I should do wealth management because I had experience managing large sums of money and I knew Wall Street and blah, blah, blah. Well, I started looking into it and I said, well, I don't, I don't really get it. I don't get why should I, you know, it, it feels nice. Like it'd be nice to get a big fat check just because of my client, you know, my client's investments went up in value or they got a raise at work and they started saving more. And so that my income is going to go up because they were saving more. Um, I just didn't feel good about that. Uh, so I started looking into how could I do the, the business differently. And by no means did I come up with this model, but I had to dig around to find people that were working um, under a flat fee model. So charging their clients for their advisory work a fee, one set fee that the client knew exactly what they were paying when they went into it. They knew what they were getting for it in terms of the advisory uh, investment management, et cetera. And it didn't change based upon, again, if 
a long lost uncle left somebody a million dollars, if you were under an as, assets under management model and your advisor got you got an extra million dollars, chances are he was going to charge you an extra $10,000 that next year for nothing. So anyway, that is sort of a, <laughs> a, a long-winded and circular way of getting back to saying that that's, that's how I got to the flat fee model because in my opinion, and this isn't to say that really good people aren't working under the, the, the fee only or essence under management model. Um, I just have a difficult time myself knowing that if I'm going to give somebody advice, if a friend comes to me and asks me about, should I get a financial advisor? What should they do for me? How should I pay them, et cetera? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is tell them, well, you know, don't pay somebody a percentage of your assets every year for no apparent reason. And so if I'm going to tell a, a good friend or a family member that, why would I then turn around and charge my clients that way? Absolutely. And it seems like what we have here is a combination of, at least from what we've talked about thus far, three different pricing models. We have the standard or historical sort of commission model in that your advisor gets a fee of your assets under management, but they also have the option of getting a commission based on various things such as putting you into certain mutual funds. So that creates this problem of are they putting me into this mutual fund because it's a good performing fund they believe in? Or is it a fund that does eh, about all right, but that advisor gets a 2% kickback because they put you in it. So you've got that commission model. Then you have fee only. Fee only is that entire first part, but they sort of promise you as their customer that, hey, I'm not going to take commissions. The only source of my income is going to be this flat fee based on your assets which brings up another point, something I just want to throw out there for the audience in case they're not following the incentive structure here. If you have a million dollars and it's a 1% assets under management fee, let's assume that money doesn't move anywhere. So year one, you've got a million dollars, 1% of a million is 10,000, the advisor gets 10,000. So if the next year you have $2 million, if by some magic between the markets and your advisor, you go from 1 million to 2 million, well, now your advisor gets $20,000 because it's still that 1%, but 1% of a bigger amount. So that's the theory in that if that advisor grows your money, they get paid more. Therefore, the thought process is I get paid when you get paid because if you earn more, I earn more. And then you've got this new thing, which is incredibly rare that I haven't heard of with most of the advisors I've spoken with, is you've got a flat fee model. So if you have $10,000 or a million dollars, my time is worth X amount per hour while I'm helping you manage this. Yeah, that's a good way to, to explain it. Just because I like to make things, um, well, I like in my business, I like everything to be as simple as possible, but I also like <laughs> to be as complete as possible. The worst, I think, phrase that's out there in, a, in the marketing jargon for advisors is the people that they call themselves fee-based. So they're purposefully trying to piggyback on the fee only, which is much better than commission. But what fee-based allows them to do is run their firms taking the percentage AUM fees and commissions in addition to that. So it's a, and yet they, but they build themselves as fee-based <laughs> and it sounds good. And I've actually had people come up to me and ask me, you know, what type of advisor 
am I? How do I get paid? Um, oh, and I said, oh, do you have an advisor? Yeah. Oh, my mine's mine's like that too. They're fee based, and <laughs> and then I, you know, a few questions come up, and then it'll inevitably you'll find out that there was a whole life policy involved in uh, in starting this relationship with their advisor and and something like that. So it's a it's a it's really it gets really sticky. And like I said, this is something that kept me from uh, re-entering finance for a while, and is certainly on the on the personal finance side. But it flipped from preventing me from getting into it to essentially <laughs> almost forcing me to get into it because I just couldn't I couldn't deal with what was happening. And it's not as if I'm going to save the world at all. But if I can educate some folks. Even talking to people on your show, I absolutely love it. People don't have to work with me, but if they want at some point in their lives to work with an advisor, and I think it's worthwhile for folks at some point in their lives to work with advisors, not everybody needs one, but it can be worthwhile. Um, At least get one that's working only in your best interest. The way that you can determine that best is to look at their business model, not whether you think you can trust them because of people are really good salesmen. And I'm not a good salesman, but someone can look at my model and they can see that I'm not, I can't, there's really no, again, incentive for me to do anything but work for them. And that's all it is, really. The trick is where are they getting their money? Are they getting their money from just you or are they getting their money from you and someone who's essentially bribing them to put you into not as good funds or give you not as good options? And that's, yeah. that's no, it. That's, that, that's really it, Alex. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I, I'm interrupting you slightly, but I think my little story of how I got back into the business tells how difficult it is for this to work in any other model if you only want to work for your client. So I got back into the business. One of my friends finally convinced me to come back in the business. I'm starting up basically an advisory firm. Turned out it was a quote unquote agency because I went to work and people can see this because all this stuff is registered with my licenses with FINRA, et cetera. But I went to work for Transamerica Financial Advisors. And I knew that that's part of an insurance company. And so they, they want to sell insurance products. But I also knew that, say, cash value insurance products are not appropriate for most people. So I said to myself, because of I love to pound square pegs into round holes, I said, <laughs> this is great. I'll work for this company because of, I have friends there. I can do the business the right way. And I spent about a year there, and I worked with 83 clients, 83 clients to different varying degrees. But I developed dozens of in-depth financial plans for people, helped them with their budgeting, did all this work because the idea, and you'll, people will hear this from quote-unquote financial advisors, they'll hear the advisor or salesman will say, no, 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 we'll do this financial planning for you, it's included or something like that. Uh, and they have really good words to, to, to get around uh, what they're doing. What they really want to do is go through this process and then sell you an insurance product or some, again, like you mentioned earlier, some mutual funds that are high load funds that will pay them those commissions. Well, I worked with all these clients and I got to that 83rd client 
and I hadn't made a dollar because each client that I worked closely enough with to, in theory, have gotten to the point where I would have sold them something that would have paid me something, I knew that it wasn't the right move for them. That wasn't the optimal way for them to spend their money or save their money. So I quit that. And luckily, I had a friend, another friend of mine who knew more about the industry, had actually been running a flat fee model advisory firm. And I apprenticed with him for about a half a year and learned sort of I'd say the the clean way of uh, and the correct way of doing the business. And uh, earlier this year, in fact, February, right before uh, COVID, I founded Verbatim Financial. That's that's my firm. Well, alrighty. And I mean, we really jumped straight into the subject matter without really <laughs> taking a breath. But I did want to give like just a short introduction. Uh, today's show, which I had mentioned before, is I want to talk about agency theory, which we're already through chapter two in, but agency theory, just to give the audience a definition, is the theory that if you hire a manager to do something for you and you're letting them handle it, agency risk is that they're going to run things in a manner that runs counter to what you want. So sort of like if you hire a money manager that you're telling them, hey, do the best things for me. The agency risk there is that they're going to take your money and put you in a fund that gives them a kickback, which isn't the best thing for you to do, but it is an all right thing for you to do, but they also get paid. So that's where it goes. So the agency theory is you hire someone to do something for you and it can be anything. It doesn't have to be just this. I mean, if you own a business, agency theory applies where if you hire a general manager so that you can take a step back from the business, if that general manager is running things counter to your values or how you want your business run, that's some agency risk. So the reason this episode is titled Agency Theory with Financial Planning, or it just agency theory, is because hiring someone to handle your money for you creates this agency risk. Are they acting in your best interest? Or are they acting in mostly your best interest, but also kind of diverting on down the path so that they get a fatter paycheck? So that's sort of what we're going into today, which again, this is a little bit late for the introduction. But hey, we're here now. yeah and i think that's it's 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 super important because of the way that financial services professionals and sometimes the word professionals is is quite loosely used there when describing folks that are there in the business when financial services professionals get involved with with your money they're playing with your future when you go to a car dealership, you know the salesman, his, full, his goal is to sell you that car. Um, there may be salesmen that, that have long-term views that they want to develop a relationship with you. They don't, if you don't buy a, a car from them that day, they think they'll, you'll buy one from them six months or a year from now. They, they might have that long-term view, but their goal is to sell you a car. And, but you also know that walking in. The real problem is when, in my mind, when you walk into a financial advisor's office and they promote themselves as an advisor or a planner who is even to use the term fiduciary, and I know you know we'll talk about that further, a fiduciary is someone who in theory acts and is required to act in your best interest. 
Um, they may promote themselves like that, but they may not be telling you that. They also really want to sell you an expensive life insurance policy. And they get paid for selling certain mutual funds over other funds. That's the big problem is people don't always know that's happening. And even on the, on the, on the fee-only side, the incentive for the advisor can be to keep the person's money under advisory because if they're managing the money, they get paid that percentage of the money managed. If the person wants to buy, say, an investment property or a vacation house or just, heck, I don't know, they want to give a big chunk of money to charity, the advisor may say, fine, go ahead and do that. But you don't know if they tell you not to do that or suggest that you don't. You'd, I mean, how do you know for sure that they're not worried about losing the income that comes along with having that money under management? And whenever you introduce questions into that relationship, which should be a relationship of trust, that's a problem. Absolutely. And that is textbook agency risk. Once you introduce this doubt, how do you know, are they giving me this advice because it is the objectively best thing for me to do? Or is there an inkling of, well, they really just don't want to lose this income. And that's something that's rather questionable there. For sure. And again, I always put this disclaimer in. I know that there are tons of really good folks who are operating right now under these models who believe that they're doing the right thing for their clients. And most of the time, I'm sure they are. But sometimes they may not be. And they may not even know it. And I say that because I've been through this training that these financial services companies give. And the training is really good. And it's very rah-rah. And they get you to believe that the products that you are selling are the best products for that person. And... So the Northwestern Mutual guy is going to tell you that his products are the best. The, the Transamerica guy is going to tell you that his products are the best. And they believe it because of that's what they're being taught in classes that are quite in-depth. And so they might actually truly believe it. You can hook them up to a, a, a polygraph and you ask them, are you working in your customer's best interest? And they'll say yes. But what do we know? We also know that you can't go against your own best interest very easily. The mind doesn't let you do that. So if you know in the back of your head, there's two products you're considering for a customer and one pays you know, $5,000 commission and the other pays a $7,500 commission and they're pretty close. I mean, they're, they're, they're close in, in, uh, in, in sort of benefit. Why would you sell them the $5,000 commission one? You wouldn't. And you would probably trick yourself. You'd say, well, you know what? It's basically the same. Why would I give up $2,500 extra commission? And, and I think that happens every single day. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the question we've been talking about this whole time. This, well, if I have this product, which is the best, and I have this product, which is 90% of what this is, but I get a fatter check, I mean, what, what is 0.1% really doing for my client? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. Um, it's, a, it's a tough situation to be in for the advisor as well, which is why I referenced earlier my experience trying to pound that square peg into the round hole. Um, and I was able to do it because 
my wife works and I didn't have to pay the mortgage with the commission that I didn't get. But people have a hard time going against their own best interest. And that's what it is. I mean, that's all it is. And Mm -hmm. with that, I'm just going to kind of segue into it a bit. So we hit that you don't want to act in not your own self-interest. So let's kind of go back a little bit and define fiduciary. So fiduciary is not necessarily 100% restrictive to financial services. Fiduciary is a legal term, which simply means that you are contractually obligated and legally obligated to act in someone else's best interest. Now, take lawyers, for example. Lawyers are fiduciaries. They are legally required to do what is best for you. Certain financial advisors are fiduciaries, not all of them. So some of them you might say, hey, are you a fiduciary, which we'll get into later, but is a question that you should ask. Sometimes you might get a, yes, I am. And sometimes you might get a, hey, we will always do what is best for you. Okay, cool. But are you a fiduciary? Because <laughs> there's a legal commitment. And then there's, oh, I'm just going to tell this guy I'm going to act in his best interest. And that's, that's very true. And the term fiduciary is, has been a football in the financial services industry, uh, kicked around uh, by trade groups and by the regulators and by consumer advocacy groups, each fighting basically to have fiduciary mean what they want it to mean in relation to financial services. Earlier this year, I'd say some regulatory action came out uh, that basically gave financial advisors and advisory firms uh, more latitude in how they could call themselves fiduciaries. And, and I wrote a blog post at the time saying that fiduciary is now nothing more than a marketing term. And I believe that because certainly you could go to a good financial advisor and ask them, are you fiduciary? And they say, yes, I'm a fiduciary. I will sign a fiduciary oath that will declare how I'm going to work in your best interest and only in your best interest. But they can also, um, quote unquote, legally or within regulatory guidelines, they can do things that may not otherwise be considered fiduciary, like they could sell you a whole life policy and earn that commission, as long as they disclose the fact that they are paid some commissions based upon the sales of products. And so that doesn't magically remove the incentives and the conflicts of interest, but they can consider themselves or sell themselves as fiduciaries because they've disclosed it. And so disclosures in financial services are also a a pretty big and and sticky uh, point at times. Oh, yeah. Anything is legal if you tell them about it. Or at least that's a very loose term. But here in this situation, we're talking, look, I am 100% a fiduciary. I will sign something that says I'm a fiduciary. But when the time comes for them to really make that fiduciary kind of choice, they can say, hey, look, here's this great deal right here that I'm going to show you. Um, Also, just whatever you do, don't look at line 23 where it says I may earn some commissions off (laughs) off of this transaction. But let's be honest, if you're in a situation where you're paying this guy to take care of your assets, clearly there's some level of trust there. Mm-hmm. So you're saying, hey, I hired this guy to ha- handle my money. If he's telling me, like, he's a fiduciary, he signed the form that says he's going to work in my best interest, but yeah, I'll sign it. Yeah, let's go do the trade. But you didn't see on line 23 that, oh, by the way, I might make some commissions on this. 
Yeah, and I don't want to, you know, say that. I, I'm not going to say that there aren't people out there who would do exactly that. Um, I think that people do disclose those things, and they and they do it because they don't want to get in trouble by being accused later on of not disclosing X, Y, or Z. But clients often don't know what that means, and they might think, "Fine, uh, that's just the way the industry works." Because of, thank God, there are blogs and podcasts such as yours out there where people are starting to really increase their financial literacy and their knowledge of how the industry works because it's pretty amazing how easily again a good salesperson can convince somebody of something um, especially if they're talking about something that makes people nervous money makes people nervous certainly and so there people are already a little on edge and then you have maybe a smooth talking salesperson and they explain all this stuff to you and they say all the right words, but it still may not be the right thing for you. Absolutely. I mean, that's the, I know I keep saying it cause I'm really trying to hit, hit on this vocab lesson. This vocabulary is that's the agency risk. Like you never know. Are they really working for you? Are they really working against you? What is it? I was actually about to interrupt you when you're saying that. That's why this podcast out here that are increasing your, I was going to jump in and say paranoia, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you said that. Paranoia is, is it may be a slightly more pejorative term than, than I would use, but suspicion, a healthy suspicion is, is very important. In fact, people would ask me, who's your ideal client? Because if my conflict of interest exists when I'm talking to somebody who I want to be my client, because I'll tell them right to their face. I'm like, well, this is it. I might, it is my, in my best interest for you to become my client. I want you to be my client. So, so that's in my best interest. You, you know, it's good for my business. And I mean, I think it'll be good for you, but that's, that's my conflict of interest. <laughs> However, once you sign, it's gone. That's, that was the last conflict of, of interest we'll ever have as a client advisor. But people would ask me, who's your best client? I would say my best client is someone who has knows they want to work with an advisor. They know they need some sort of assistance, but they are suspicious of the industry and they are rightfully suspicious of the industry. I mean, you just got to look at history. I and mean, if you have a crazy cousin that comes over and every time they come over to your house, something's missing the next day. I mean, that's take that, but it's an industry. Like if there's been the last 50, 60 years advisors doing this, unfortunately, they've gained the reputation that they have. I'm a big proponent of trust, but verify. So, I mean, if an advisor comes up and says, hey, I think XYZ is a great solution for you. I mean, if you're paying whoever this is, you're a percentage of assets, or if you're paying them anything, like you can take the five minutes to do a Google search. Is this a good thing? Is this? So something you had brought up before was load fees. So for those of you who have been longtime listeners of the show or watchers of the show, in my mutual funds episode, I explained what a load fee is. Basically, it's a fee just for the privilege of investing in the fund. Well, some of that can be given as a commission to the advisor who puts you in the fund. So if an advisor comes up to you and says, hey, I think mutual fund X, Y, and Z is a fantastic fund. I think it would be a great addition to your portfolio. All it takes is one Google search to find out that, huh, it does look like it's a pretty decent fund, but I don't know about that 5% load fee. Mm -hmm. so, Those kinds of things put you behind the eight ball from the beginning. If you were to pay a 5% load on a fund, 
then just make the numbers easy. The shares of the fund are $100 a share. You now own them at $95 or at $105 essentially because of it has to get back up to 105 before you've made any money, give or take a little bit of math there on the fractions. But yeah, you, you're you already $5 behind the eight ball. And that's what it is. I, true story, just for you and the audience. I went through a phase while I was going through my uh, nerd evolution of finance of just, I was asking my parents like, hey, let me see your 401k. Let me see the options. Let me see what you're invested in. I found out that my dad's financial advisor, it was a 5% front end load on basically everything he was in. And it honestly, it took me a month or two to really convince him. I was like, oh, dad, you, you realize that you're getting 5%, you're getting a 5% haircut every time you make a deposit with this guy. And then I showed him the math on what that actually looks like. And honestly, I don't think he told me how that ended up, but I doubt he's still working with that advisor because that 5% is a lot. Oh God, yes. I mean, but any frankly, any front end load is 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 too much nowadays. But yes, it's crazy. And despite the internet and despite the podcasts and the blogs, those funds are still getting sold. Oh yeah. Cause you got people that just trust their advisor, which isn't necessarily a bad thing to trust the person that's handling your money, but trust but verify. Yeah, Manage you have the to manager. Do that. And and it it exists on all levels, the advisors don't even have to be involved. 401k management companies, they will offer a certain number of funds. And sometimes it's very, it's not clear. People don't know. They're like, oh, let me buy this fund, that fund, that fund. I've allocated my 401k. And maybe there were 12 funds available. If you don't dig down, you could end up with maybe six of the funds have loads in front end loads and six don't. You could end up paying some of them. There's no advisor. You're putting money into 401k, which is a great thing to do in, in general, but you may still be costing yourself money because of these products still exist that, again, in my opinion, shouldn't even exist. Yeah, I can agree with that. I actually had a college professor, uh, I think it was junior year, we were doing por- taking portfolio management that for those of you that don't know, college professors have a quota of the amount of professional research they have to do, publish, get peer-reviewed, all that good stuff. He was telling us that his most recent peer-reviewed project that just got done was he did a test of do mutual funds that charge a load fee return more than similar mutual funds that don't have a load fee? You can imagine the what the response was. Well, if you don't consider the expenses paid towards the mutual fund in the load fee, then the performance was similar. I believe it was, it was neck and neck. Basically it was the same thing, Mm -hmm. but when you factor in the fees, well, guess which one won the one that didn't have fees. So unanimously across the board, if you compare two funds, one with a load, one without, it's not that. And the theory would be, Oh, well I'm paying for this. So they probably have more quality people than this mutual fund because you know I'm paying for it. So naturally you're getting a more quality product. Well, I'm I'm here to tell you there's peer-reviewed research that says that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh that sort of hits on gets out of the agency theory subject. Uh yeah, it does. Bit. We went straight and off the rabbit hole. Yeah, there's a 
there, there, there could be a whole other episode about active versus passive management. And I, I know you've hit on that in the past before, but that's, that's again, that's, that's another reason why, frankly, it's another reason why I was able to get back into the business because initially, circling back to my intro, when folks told me that I should go into wealth management, I said to them, why would I do that? I can't pick a stock for somebody. I'm not going to tell somebody. They're like, well, you managed three, four billion dollars. And I said, well, I, I managed money based upon uh, parameters that were given to me. Clients ne- needed specific things. And I could hit those targets because I knew what I was doing with those investments. But that's very different than the idea that I'm going to do some research uh, in my office in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm somehow going to pick, you know, the next Amazon, or even somehow, you know, tell somebody when Amazon's going to stop going up or whatever, right? And so that whole concept is flawed. uh, And there are peer-reviewed papers (laughs) that show that as well. Uh, But the idea of passive investing, index fund investing, uh, those things brought me back into the industry. Well, alrighty then. I mean, you got to have something that is the thing you love, the thing that draws you back. The, you know, every time I leave, I just keep crawling back. But uh, I know we went straight down the rabbit hole or off a cliff. I think I, uh, <laughs> I think I merged those a few minutes back when I said that. But to give us a little bit back on track with the agency theory, what are in your professional experience some maybe warning signs or red flags to look out for when you're maybe hiring an advisor or maybe even when you have the advisor, some things that maybe should prompt you to dig a little deeper. There's two questions that folks can ask of potential advisors or their current advisor because of, frankly, people who have been working even with the same advisor for years, a lot of them can't answer these questions. And the first is, how do you get paid? And so that will open up the door to finding out, again, are they commission? Are they AUM? Are they flat fee or hourly, some more discrete uh, payment model? And then the second question, which is, it seems very similar, but it's, it's super important, is how much in fees and total investment costs will I pay? Because then the fee-only advisor will often say, okay, well, my fee is average is 1%, you know, maybe it steps down as, as you gain more money uh, or you put more money in, in with me. But you also need to know what are all the funds that they're putting you into? What are the fees within those funds? The management fees are their loads, as we just discussed. And all of that needs to be put together because if, if you think, if you're going to an advisor and he's fee only and he tells you he's charging you 1%, you're like, well, yeah, I pay 1%. And then you discover that instead of being put into uh, index funds that are, you know, you might pay 12, 15 basis points, uh, a management fee, which is a percentage of a percentage, uh, you find out that you're paying an extra one and a half percent when you add everything else together in terms of additional fees, you could be down two, two and a half percent or more that you're losing every year. And there's the people talk about the magic of compound interest, and it's a great thing. Uh, your money can grow. There's also the tyranny of compounding fees. If your fees are a percentage base, they also grow. 
And of course, that means that every 1% that you lose out on, if you compound that out up until when you'd retire, when you need that money, that $1,000 this year that you paid in fees turns into what could have been $20,000, you know, 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's pretty sad, actually, but that there's a reason why these companies have these big shiny buildings. And there's a reason why insurance companies own all sorts of commercial real estate. And there's a reason why they paid me to invest and manage billions of dollars of insurance company money. <laughs> they make this money by selling people these products that pay them very well. You know, one of these days I'm going to do the episode. I've One of these days I'm going to do the episode on fees and how you get robbed year over year over year on those fees and an episode on cash value life insurance or whole life and universal life. Mm-hmm. Now, I talked to an insurance expert a couple episodes back and I mean, he gave a good overview, but in my head I had to go through and I was like, well, you know, it's because it only works for like the mega rich. Like if you need, if you've maxed out your 401ks, your IRAs, and you've done basically everything else, there is some fantastic benefits you can get from whole life and universal life. But if you're the average person. Uh, yeah, um, that would be a great episode. I, I listened to, to to that episode of yours a while back on uh, on insurance. And I agree. The gentleman put a good overview on it, but was a little generous towards towards the cash value uh, <laughs> products. Well, yeah, they got it. That's where they make all the money, mm-hmm. which isn't to say anything bad for him. But it's like you spend a whole career saying something, you're going to keep saying it because that's just how it works. And cash value can do magical things, but it's for a such a small subsect of people that if you have a cash value life insurance policy and your household income is 50k you're doing it wrong yeah i you know far be it for me to give advice on this show we're we're talking education and things like that but it's very difficult to get excited over those products <laughs> or unless you're getting excited trying to keep people from spending money on them absolutely and look i'll go ahead and i'll do the honors for you <clears throat> Even though John Stoy is a registered financial advisor, he is not necessarily your financial advisor. Anything he says here should be considered as educational or, you know, just general advice and not necessarily advice that you should take up. Fantastic, <laughs> Alex. That I, I, I need you to intro uh, all of my podcasts. <laughs> That's the magic of podcasts. I just got to <laughs> say it once and then you just copy and paste it in each one. So remember, folks. We're talking in gross generalities, not necessarily you specifically. If you have an advisor, bring it to them. That's what you pay them for. If you don't have an advisor, subscribe to the show. I'll cover it again. (laughs) (laughs) Not to have a shameless plug. Speaking of shameless plugs, John, where can my audience find out more about you, more about Verbatim Capital, and just more about what you do? The best way to learn more about me is simply to go to my firm's website, Verbatim financial.com. And, you know, I've got blog posts on there. I'm not a prolific blogger, but there's, there's some more background on me. And if anybody's interested in learning more uh, about any of the topics that we talked about, I hope that, that they might, your listeners may be able to tell that uh, I'm not going to try to sell them uh, on me being their financial advisor. I actually really enjoy giving people good information and pointing them in the right direction. So if you go to my website and the reach out button and and you have a question that you just like to bounce off me, I don't have a problem with that. Absolutely. And all those links will be in the description below. Do you have like a public like Twitter or something like that? 
all of my essentially uh, social media is under uh, my handle that uh, I gathered in college. It's actually uh, Stoyboy. Uh, it's and it's it's spelled not how it's pronounced. It's S T O J B O J. So I am at Stoyboy uh, almost everywhere. <laughs> Well, all righty. And just so you don't even have to worry about the spelling, that all is going to be with everything else in the description below, because you know what? I'm just generous like that. <laughs> well, thank you. Alex. I do appreciate that. Oh, I was talking to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> all righty, John. So before we really get out of here, what would be maybe your last second words of wisdom that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, I think that this is it's a small piece of what I try to do for my clients. You can give yourself this gift is that keep everything as simple as possible, especially early on. Um, If you don't feel like you feel confident with investing, that's okay. All you really need to do is start saving money you placed in the market in say a total market fund, that's going to capture for you the returns that the market give you versus trying to throw a dartboard at the wall or at the the Wall Street Journal uh, stock pages and pick a stock. And so if you're nervous about that, make it simple and take the difficult questions out of it, but just save. The sooner you start saving, the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. And for those in the audience who have never heard of it, this is, I'm going to leave you one more vocabulary word. I promise this one's easy. And this one's called the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) I live by it. That's the best way to go. And honestly, because your first couple of years, and look, I'm addressing the audience here directly. Your first couple of years are all about accumulation. You're not going to get much growth. The $5,000 you have invested is going to grow. But even if it's a 20% growth, 20% of 5,000, you know, it's, you're talking $1,000. $1,000 isn't the most amount of money in the grand scheme of things. We're trying to retire with a million. Your first couple of years are going to be adding money to your account consistently, contributing, contributing, contributing. It's that last sort of five or 10 years when you have this big pile of money that that 20% growth is going to be something huge. So as long as you have something in, and I totally recommend a total stock market fund, as long as you have it there, you're going to match the market. And that's fine. That's really all you need. Keep it simple. Move forward. Now, there's obviously more you can add to it. If you go back to a previous episode that I'd done with a previous financial advisor, Jeff Porter, we talk about several simple portfolios, which might bear for a little bit more research for you to dig into. But again, remember, educational we're not necessarily giving you exact advice. Do your own research. Trust, but verify. <laughs> and with that, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Very happy you were able to take some time out of your day to come speak with me, even though it's nighttime. <laughs> no, it's great. Thank you. I, I I enjoyed it. Like I said, sometimes I feel like I get up on a soapbox a little bit when we talk about these subjects, but uh, but I'm happy to do it. Oh, I do it too. How I have anyone still watching me is honestly astonishing to me. and so with that we're gonna quit while the iron's hot quit while we're ahead john thank you again for being here and for everyone else i'll see you guys next week